This is Gigawaters, the latest podcast series from Energy Voice Out Loud in paid partnership with Orsted. We are leading the global energy conversation, examining how offshore wind, and specifically the Scotwind leasing round, can propel Scotland towards its net zero goals. Along the way, there are countless opportunities for companies and workers to benefit, particularly around developing world-leading renewable technology. Scotland is competing on a global stage, and innovation will be key, but its pedigree is strong with the likes of Alexander Graham Bell, John Logie Baird, and James Watt, to name but a few. I'm Hamish Penman, a digital journalist at Energy Voice, and joining me today is my co-host David Bould, Lead Research and Development Specialist at Danish Renewables Giant Orsted, and our special guest for this episode, Vicky Coy, Head of Innovation Projects at the Offshore Renewable Energy Catapult. Thank you both for joining me today. I'm sure it's going to be a really interesting discussion. Uh, to come to you first, David, what do we mean when we talk about renewable technology? Is it the inner workings of the turbine themselves or all the bolt-on pieces of kit that support the wind farms, or perhaps both? It's both, yeah. And at Orsted, we consider ourselves let's say, the constructor, owner, and operator of offshore wind technologies. So to a large extent, we don't develop those technologies ourselves, but we have a huge number of suppliers, and we piece together their technologies into a single offshore wind power plant. So that's everything from the substructures to obviously the turbines themselves, the electrical infrastructure that allows us to export the power, and everything about how we operate, service, and maintain those wind farms for 25, 30 years as well. That's great. And coming to you now, Vicky, where is Scotland in this global offshore wind technology market at the moment? Scotland is right at the forefront um, in the technologies and also in the projects and probably in the thinking as well in terms of rounds like Scotland being pitched to capture a huge part of that market and you know put Scotland at the forefront of the technology and the projects that are leading the sector at the moment. And and what work is the or catapult doing to kind of make Scotland the, the Silicon Valley for offshore wind? Yeah, so the catapult is a technology innovation centre. So our purpose is to really look at offshore renewable technologies and that includes floating offshore wind. Um, as well as fixed bottom floating offshore wind wave and tidal technologies. So for us, particularly when we're looking at things like the Scotwind um, round, we have just started a floating offshore wind centre of excellence based here in Glasgow. It's a collaborative initiative with industry. And the purpose of that is really to look at reducing the cost of energy of floating offshore wind technologies and really helping to support um, the UK and Scotland's missions to reduce carbon emissions and really increase gross value add for UK PLC as well. And so part of the role of that centre of excellence is to help accelerate the build out of floating offshore wind farms and creating opportunities for the offshore wind supply chain in the UK um, and driving innovations in areas like manufacturing, installation, operation and maintenance, and really looking at, I guess, the, the parts of the technology that Dave has just been talking about there as well. Great. And we'll, we'll dig into that floating uh, floating segment a wee bit later on. Dave, from your perspective, what can Scotland or how can Scotland become a, a global hub for offshore wind technology? And, and, and you're kind of looking at this from a perhaps an outsider perspective as well from a, across the North Sea. Yeah, and so I'm based in Denmark and I'm looking after our external research collaborations globally. Uh, so I see this from, from that global perspective, but also how it applies to our different markets and particularly Scotland as you know, where, I, where I started my career in renewables as well. But I think to my mind, it's for Scotland now, it's less about trying to get a slice of, let's say, the existing offshore wind sector. But the real goal is look at where the sector is going next 
and try to take an early leader's position there. So being the innovators and providing new solutions, both for use at home in Scotland, but abroad as well. Um, so we've got a good idea of the, the general direction that the sector will go in, um, in say the next decade or so, uh, and what challenges we have to overcome in that time. So we know where to target our innovation. And we already have you know, really exceptional innovation capability in Scottish universities and research organisations and technology developers. We've got a really skilled workforce in Scotland. A uh, good example there is the, the workforce that's transitioning from the oil and gas sector in Scotland and brings a really different flavour of innovation to the offshore wind sector as well. And I think Scotland's actually, a, we could say, an ideal proving ground for the next generation of technologies as well because it's, it's got an amazing natural resource. It's got large cities and remote rural communities. It's got uh, large electricity and gas networks. It's got distinct seasons. It's got some heavy industry and extensive travel network. So it's, I think it's quite hard actually to imagine a technology solution that we need in offshore wind or energy systems more generally, that we don't have the skills to develop and demonstrate here in Scotland. And I would also add to that a strong political support of climate, I think, in Scotland as well. That's kind of an important part of that mix too. And, and just borrowing down, because we've got Dave's perspective there from kind of looking looking inwards. Vicky, looking uh, outwards, you seeing the real global interest from from not only Europe, but perhaps uh, across in the States as well, with the offshore wind market beginning to gather speed? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think Scotland is really looking to to capture that first mover advantage. So really securing early deployments in technologies like floating offshore wind and then looking ahead to exporting those, you know, that sort of deployment expertise and the innovations in other markets like the US. And I think, David, you've probably got some good examples of that happening already in some of your projects and, and companies that you're working with. So I think we've, we've probably got a really good example in a technology developer, a company called Picked Offshore. And that's a company uh, that Ori Catapult and Vicky work with a lot as well. Uh, we've had quite a long-standing collaboration with that company. They develop a technology or a system that they call Get Up Safe. It's a motion-compensated lifting system for transferring technicians, personnel, from service vessels to turbines to conduct maintenance. It's a system that's really rapidly gone from prototype maybe three or four years ago now to being commissioned for use on our upcoming Hornsey 2 wind farm in uh, the English North Sea, but is now also being commissioned for use in our South Fork wind farm, which we'll install in the US in the near future. So I think that's a really good example of a Scottish technology developer finding a gap in the market, developing a world-class solution, proving it and implementing it at home and then uh, exporting it for the global wind market as well. That is the, the perfect example of the sort of thing that the Catapult supports with, which is to understand a gap in the market that needs an innovative technology solution and then help um, small and medium enterprise organisations or entrepreneurs to actually make a success out of it technology kind of provide that network to industry and then you know help them be a success and that is exactly what we've kind of been part of that journey with picked and kind of helping them be part of now or instead kind of roll out plans for the US so you know it's a fantastic example for us that's something we I think everybody in Scotland is looking to see a lot a lot more of and, and hopefully work at the catapult we'll be able to 
you kind of push that along nicely. I'd like to delve down for every main to the the kind of specific technologies. If you were going to pick kind of a, a handful that are really going to be at the the forefront and that Scotland should really look to cash in on, what would be the ones that stand out for you both? Coming to you, Vicky, first. So I think when we look ahead to the future um, and the future of the sector, so where we're looking kind of 10 years from now, the areas that we think are where the kind of new concepts and novel concepts that can be exploited, so the kind of things that we're looking at at the moment, are in areas like surveying and uh, data collection, different types of substructure design and their manufacture and assembly, mooring and anchoring systems and dynamic cable systems. So dynamic cables are those that can flex um, and that's important in looking at technologies like floating offshore wind as opposed to fixed cables that don't really have, you know, aren't able to move so much. Um, and then transportation, installation, and then operations and maintenance. So really looking at things like subsea inspection and monitoring. So in those areas, we're looking at things like autonomous systems. So if I pick on a couple of projects that we're doing at the moment that are looking at that sort of 10 year horizon. So we have a project called MIMRI. So that uh, stands for Multi-Platform Inspection, Maintenance and Repair in Extreme Environments. And that's an Innovate UK funded project, which is looking at transforming offshore wind operations. So it's really about demonstrating how you can use autonomous ships and robotic crews that they're able, you know, they're capable of doing the planning and executing, inspecting and repairing without the need for any offshore human presence, which means that people can stay onshore and actually still do that inspection, maintenance and repair without having to go into less safe offshore conditions. So it's a kind of NASA inspired mission planning software that's combined with things like inspection drones and repair robots. So that's the kind of stuff that we're looking at at the moment, that sort of really autonomous, you know, decoupling human presence offshore with actually being able to maintain and operate and deploy offshore turbines. But also it represents a massive cost saving potentially as well. So I think the estimates on using a memory system over the lifetime of an offshore wind farm could save £26 million or thereabouts. You know, so these are significant cost reduction as well. So it's not just about the innovations, you know, they're all driven by the need to reduce costs as well. So another type of technology that we're looking at is, or a project and a team that we're working with, is an organisation called ActBlade. So they're a company that was spun out of a small firm that designs sail technology for America's Cup style racing yachts. So they are able to use and manipulate sails to capture the wind and optimize it for you know, driving sailboats forward. So they're bringing that technology into the offshore wind sector with the aim of making really light, really controllable wind turbine blades that could be longer, that can increase the energy production out of a similar sized conventional blade, whilst also reducing that cost of energy again. And they also have advantages of being recyclable and made from recycled materials. So that sort of novel textile blade is something that is going to hopefully be on that 10 year and beyond horizon. And then there are other things that we're looking at as well. So we know that there's a vast amount of data that's collected by offshore wind operators and that's you know that's not going to reduce there's only going to be more and more data collected so for us that's understanding how to better analyze that data provide benchmarking services to the operators who are collecting those data and helping use those data to drive better decision making so that means things like helping to predict failures or when to do preventative maintenance or things like optimization as well you know rather than holding lots and lots of spare parts if you can use data to understand when you might want to change something or might need a spare part then actually you're not 
you know, holding on to lots and lots of spare equipment or things that, you know, you may not actually need to use. So it's using that data more intelligently. And then also for us, it's about testing. So a big part of what we do is testing novel technologies. So we've tested recently the longest blades in the world, the largest nacelles, we're testing dynamic cables, um, leading edge erosion. So that's on the leading edge of blades, you know, understanding how that can affect and impact on performance. And so when we're looking at testing, we're always trying to think about actually how do we develop our services and skills for the next thing. And so for us at the moment, that's us thinking about how we would test um, the nacelle of a floating, you know, huge floating offshore wind turbine. You know, do we need to have it on something like a shaker table like you would have for um, mimicking seismic earthquakes, for example? So there's all that sort of innovation as well that goes into thinking about how we will help our, you know, play our part in validating and testing those technologies that are coming forward on the horizon as well. That's fascinating, especially the, the blade recycling as well, because there's so much work is obviously going on within the sector to close that last kind of 5% gap to make them, make them truly truly circular. And Dave, what about some examples from your world? Like we mentioned, we've got quite a lot of, we know what the challenge areas in Scotland are, and some of the specific projects we're executing now in Scotland to tackle those are, I think a first really exciting example I'll highlight is a project we recently kicked off with the University of Aberdeen and the University of Highlands and Islands. It's called PREDICT. And it's looking to improve our ability to model and monitor fish migration patterns. And that means we're better able to predict the movements of top predators like seabirds and marine mammals. And in turn, again, that means we've got a better understanding of when seabirds and mammals are likely to be in the vicinity of our wind farms. And so we're better able to avoid or mitigate the impact of those interactions. Again, working with universities in Scotland, uh, another really exciting project we're kicking off right now is with the University of Strathclyde. And Vicky touched on the importance of you know, improving our use of artificial intelligence and machine learning to improve our use of data. And that's exactly what this project's aiming to do. So it's looking at how we get an improved understanding of soil characteristics in a wind farm site with less need for costly, risky survey work get a better understanding of how those soils will interact with our foundations. And that means we can design and deliver more structurally efficient foundations. I think a, a nice added benefit of that project as well is that a lot of it will be delivered by a PhD student. So that means we can contribute to both innovation and skills development at the same time, and hopefully have a, a great new recruit to the Orsted team in a few years' time as well. Dave, from the developer and operator perspective, what's kind of uh, one, the technologies that I suppose you are beginning to implement and and two, perhaps ones that you're looking out for that aren't yet kind of available on the market, I suppose. And and to be honest, that, that tends to be the technologies that I focus on and the, the department I work in focus on. It's more of the technologies that we'll be looking to implement, not on our net generation of arrays, but the generation after that. And honestly, I, I, I don't know for sure what those technologies will be over the next, say, five to 10 years. I think, you know, like I mentioned earlier, we know what the challenges that we face are going to be if we want to keep increasing the share of energy systems that uh, offshore wind takes. And so we at least know the, let's say, the categories of technology innovations that we're going to need developed in that time frame as well. Um, I think if we, we look at Scotland first and look at the challenges that are most pertinent in Scotland as we look to grow and what barriers to growth we have there, uh, I think the first one that really jumps to mind is around the transmission system. 
So simply the, the let's say the presence and the qual- quality of a transmission system in places, but also that our areas of best wind resource in Scotland are mostly very far away from centres of demand and in areas where really quite high transmission charges are imposed. So that means that electricity from Scottish wind farms can seem less competitive than, say, from from wind farms in the English North Sea. So I think that's the first major challenge that uh, jumps to mind in a Scottish context. Next, I'd say it's probably that there are portions of the energy system that aren't particularly suitable for electrification. So, for instance, uh, heavy transport and industry but we still want to be able to meet that demand from, from the wind resource, from the amazing wind resource we have in Scotland, right? Um, and that means that we have to convert some of our electricity from offshore wind into alternative fuels. And in a lot of cases, that's going to be hydrogen. So we need innovation around that conversion process from electricity to hydrogen, around how to transport the hydrogen and how to transition sectors that still rely on fossil fuels to using hydrogen instead. I think hydrogen actually has the potential to maybe be a bit of a a wonder fuel. Um, It's storage and perhaps even some use of hydrogen thermal plants has the potential to alleviate some of the grid constraint issues we just mentioned as well. And if we're developing those hydrogen technologies, innovative hydrogen technologies in Scotland, it also provides a great export potential both for the technologies, but also for the hydrogen itself there's potential to be exporting that around Europe. Also, uh, coming back to that point on, on grid charging, because I think it's about one that's it's been really in, in, in the news a lot. It perhaps doesn't create the uh, the best headlines, but it, it is something that's incredibly important. And a lot of the Scottish Affairs Committee, they had an inquiry earlier this year that really flagged it as being a serious problem towards offshore wind deployment in Scotland. Is there technology kind of being developed at the moment that can help to address a lot of those issues, perhaps not just in the creating the hydrogen side of things, but also in kind of bulking up the grid and, and putting it in a position to uh, to be ready to receive all of this renewable power that's inevitably going to come. Yeah, and, and more generally about how we make better use of the, the transmission systems and the grids. There's a lot of work there around energy storage, obviously. So whether that's um, battery electrochemical storage or thermal or gas or liquid storage, that can really help to provide the grid ancillary services that we need and that are becoming less common as thermal plant goes offline and provide the flexibility that the grid needs. And again, hydrogen can act as some form of storage on the energy system as well. And then there's a lot of really interesting work around smarter uh, management control and operation of the grids as well. Um, so timing and better balance of supply and demand. It is really something that has been flagged by a, a lot of companies up here. Vicky, from a lot of the ones that you've worked with, has this kind of cropped up as an issue, that this kind of transmission charging system and, and the fact that developments in Scotland are facing the, this tariff that, that one south of the border aren't? I will say this is not my specialist subject, but I think one example that I can give you that is pertinent, I think. So... We know, well, as everyone has experienced at the moment, the the issue around our susceptibility for things like wholesale gas prices means that there's a real tight focus now on things like our energy mix and actually the security of our energy mix and the vulnerabilities of things like renewables onto our grid and actually how that may or may not affect the price of electricity going forward. And one project that we have that I think is, is kind of part of that vanguard of 
the Forward Look to New Technologies is a, a title project that we're working with with an organization called Nova Innovation, who are a title developer based in Edinburgh and Scotland, who have a, a big array project up in Shetland. And they, for the last couple of years, have had a battery storage integrated in with their title project that feeds electricity straight into the grid from that storage system. So it's effectively a baseload power station into the national grid. So it's the first of its kind in the world. And it's, it sort of happened quietly in the background. But actually, if you look at that technology, if you look at the systems that they've developed around that baseload power system, you know, that's the sort of thing that we're going to be seeing in our energy mix in the future. And it's a kind of really exciting example of something that is, is offsetting exactly that issue that you're just raising now. Excellent. And that, that kind of point of different renewables technologies, we'll, we'll come back to that a bit later on and what, what shared learnings there are. I think we'll take a, a short break for the minute, but yeah, we'll discuss that more and uh, also the big point of jobs when we come back. Orsted is one of the world's largest renewable energy companies and in 2021 was ranked the most sustainable energy company in the world for the third consecutive year. With more than 30 years of experience, we are the global leader in offshore wind, with 7.6 gigawatts already installed across Europe, the USA and Asia Pacific. But we're just getting started and hope to invest a further £12 billion in Scotland alone in the next decade. We are taking tangible action to help create a world which runs entirely on green energy, leveraging our capabilities and insights to help countries and companies in their green transformations as we accelerate the fight against climate change together. Join us on the journey at orsted.co.uk. Hello and welcome back to Gigawaters. Uh, just before we broke there, we were kind of looking at these different technologies and, and uh, the opportunities that each of them are going to bring. Looking at the kind of also the floating offshore wind versus the fixed installation offshore winds, there's obviously a, a bit, bit of a disparity there as well, and there's going to be certain technologies that are going to suit either turbine. Dave, I think you were going to make a point earlier before I so rudely cut across you on on these technologies and in floating specifically. What's your kind of view from Orsted on this? Yeah, and I think if we're if we're going back to the idea of looking at firstly what the challenges we face are in Scotland, and actually quite a lot of that is around the sites we have available for offshore wind in Scotland as well. So many of them, and particularly the ones with the best resource, are in really rather deep water, and that means that really very soon we need to start make, making use of floating substructures rather than foundations that are fixed to the seabed. Um, and I, I don't think we've found the limit yet of what we can do with fixed foundations, uh, the monopile, for instance. For water depths, we can install monopiles in. The size of turbines we can support with monopiles are still growing. But I think it's pretty fair to say that once we start wanting to install wind turbines in water depths of maybe 80 meters or more, then we really need to be looking at floating substructures again. And the, the global market, let's say, for floating wind technologies is huge. Um, but I think through Scotland, then Scotland's really well positioned to be the first developer and deployer of large-scale floating wind farms and then export those solutions globally, let's say. Is there an optimum design yet for floating structures or, or do you think that there's still a lot of work that needs to be done to in incorporate different kind of technologies and perhaps different designs, designs in to create almost, I suppose, a uniform 
a uniform product that can be then scaled up rapidly and the cost brought down. Yeah, and I think that's a an, an ideal goal for us to get to. I think the the wind turbine itself is a really good example of where we have found convergence of design on the you know the three bladed horizontal axis, and we definitely don't have that in floating substructures for turbines yet. Um, and I think there's we can definitely say that the floating wind market is going to take off. It's going to be a huge global opportunity, but there are definitely plenty of innovation gaps that still need to be filled. So that concept for a substructure is one, but there's also a lot of work to be done, for instance, around how we moor those structures, uh, the dynamic cables we need to get power out of the floating turbines, how we control those turbines in a much more dynamic environment, how we get personnel onto those structures to maintain them. Um, so again, I think a lot of, we could call them innovation challenges, but they're also opportunities. And again, if Scotland is the first country to really do this at large scale, then Scotland can be the developer and exporter of those solutions. And those, those challenges and opportunities, Vicky, at the Floating Offshore Wind Centre of Excellence, those must be the, uh, the exact points that you're looking to plug. Yeah, exactly. And with Scotland, the Crown Estate of Scotland has left um, plenty of opportunity for developers to select technologies to allow them also the chance to decide and determine which structure and which types of technologies are best for the sites that they're looking at. So we will see what Dave's talking about as well, that convergence on designs, and it may differ between sites as well. And so for us in the floating offshore wind centre of excellence, that's the sort of thing that we'll be helping the, the developers that we're in partnership with. So we'll be looking at those exact um, innovation challenges, so particularly around things like substructure and how we can help them identify improvements to moorings or different anchoring solutions, those sort of projects will be working on now until all those projects start to get deployed. Excellent. And now I'd like to kind of look at the, uh, almost I suppose the elephant in the room as it always is in these discussions, but the issue of jobs. And because there are, let's call them concerns in the moment that perhaps Scotland isn't fabricating the, the turbines themselves, the turbine blades to, to really kind of cash in on the, the hundreds and the thousands of jobs that are really going to make this this green revolution a success. There are obviously a, a lot of these kind of projects going on, Vicky, these kind of small scale ones, but what, what and perhaps concerns that these are, those aren't going to deliver the same amount of jobs as the big fabrication work. What, where do you kind of what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think the Scottish government and the the Scottish Offshore Wind Energy Council have looked strategically at this, so they've done a strategic assessment to look at exactly where investment should go in the sector to make sure that we are in Scotland focused on putting money into the right areas. And so for things like manufacturing or assembly and also the supply chain, you know, where should we be focusing the money that we have? So for the sector, it's really clustered around ports. So making the most of the ports that we have in Scotland and making sure that they are ready to feed this industry and then clustering the supply chain activities around that. So for things like manufacturing, so creating jobs, having all of that ready-made um, and, and kind of invested in so that it's there for the sector when it needs it. So I think those are the kind of key things that in Catapult we're looking at as well. And I think, you know, there is huge job potential there. And, and we do talk, and Dave has mentioned already about that energy transition and the the jobs transition that we have from 
an oil and gas sector that you know we're keen in Scotland to transition out of and move towards a renewable sector. Um, and it's not quite a like-for-like -like job. So though there is expertise in offshore, it's not quite the same sites. It's not quite the same depth of water. It's not quite the same sort of maintenance activities or exploitation activities. So there is a bit of transition to be had between those jobs as well. And I think also a recalibration of expectation as well. So, you know, salaries we know in the oil and gas sector are huge. And at the moment, that isn't the case for the renewable sector. So there's also a transition in understanding, you know, what it means to transition from an oil and gas sector into a renewable sector. But we may find you know, that that changes actually. You know, we're going to see this huge growth and rollout of offshore winds and floating offshore wind projects in Scotland, where we're probably going to have demand outstripping supply for jobs, at least initially, until all these industries spin up. And so you know, we may see salaries rise back up in line with oil and gas sector. And I'm sure that's what Scottish government's hoping. Um, so we're kind of in that in that sort of tipping point, I think at the moment where we're switching from, you know, an oil and gas sector into a renewable sector, you know, that that horizon for us is is kind of there. We can see it. I think that salaries point is really, really important because I think as soon as those kind of start to perhaps reach a kind of balance between, that's when we'll start to see really a serious movement. And Dave, from from Allstead's side, how do you kind of see these uh, these technological uh, innovations and advancements? How are those going to translate into into meaningful, well paid jobs for for folk? Yeah, and I, th I think what we're seeing is that already we do have a, a huge demand for skilled workforce in offshore wind, um, potentially already more demand than we have supply. The rate at which the sector is growing is, is staggering. And you, you mentioned fabrication as one potential source of, of uh, employment, and that's just one part of the whole offshore wind story, right? So we also need skilled professionals in the design and construction of wind farms, in the operation and maintenance of them, in the development of the technologies that are assembled together into a wind into a wind power plant. And like Vicky mentioned, I think we have uh, an amazing workforce that we can hopefully rely on and transition from Scottish oil and gas to Scottish offshore wind. And again, like Vicky mentioned, there's a huge range of disciplines that were developed as part of the oil and gas sector that are really relevant to what we do. So things like subsea engineering and naval architecture, uh, floating structures when floating wind really takes off, um, robotics, autonomous systems, and then the more business aspects of that as well. So around consents and planning and project management of huge infrastructure projects as well. So I think what we what we have, but what we need there is the organisations to help those people make that transition from oil and gas to uh, to offshore wind as well. So people like Ori Catapult, like the Net Zero Technology Centre, like the University of Aberdeen, really doing great work to make sure that we as a sector have the opportunity to make use of those people and those skills, and vice versa, that those people have the opportunity for a new career in our sector. It feels like that tipping point is getting closer and I was just going to add what Dave's just mentioned actually which is you know the the universities that we have in Scotland and across the UK are really well positioned to start you know feeding the sector and we're seeing more courses shaped around renewables we're seeing a bigger I guess a bigger depth of renewables expertise going through different types of courses so things like business not just in engineering but we're also looking at the further education system so colleges as well you know we're starting to pull into our business apprentices across our business so not just in 
technicians or engineers, but also in, in areas like procurement and in project management. So those apprentices are also going to become part of this workforce. So not just, you know, highly skilled graduates, but also, you know, others who've come through different routes as well. And I think having leading universities and further education colleges, you know, in areas that where these offshore technologies are being deployed. So universities are always, you know, in big cities, but actually these coastal communities, a bit more on the outer reaches of the edges of the UK, do have further education colleges that are really now focusing on this clean, green growth sector, which means that people don't have to leave the areas to go away and get education or opportunity. We're actually able to grow the sector from those areas and actually you know, bring up productivity in areas where we know you know, in the last few years have been areas of low productivity, we're really starting to see that rise now. And I think that's an important part of this green transition as well, is being able to build capacity, knowledge and jobs in those areas. So it's a kind of real win-win, I think, all round. Absolutely. I remember when I started university in, in Aberdeen, kind of a couple of years before oil crashed, and there were so many folk doing petroleum geology courses and geology courses. And obviously though, there, are, there will still be those many, many people doing them, but since I mean, certainly in the last couple of years, more and more seem to be rolling out these renewables energy transition courses. Do Dave, do you think that's going to be something that really will speed this transition on? Is this going to be a key part of that? Absolutely, yeah. And um, I mean, it's it's a career path I followed myself. I actually I started off in oil and gas when I first graduated my undergraduate degree. Did uh, seven or eight years offshore in seismic surveying for oil and gas. And then when I decided that I wanted to retrain and move into renewables, that's the way I did it, by going back to university and doing a, a professional master's in sustainable energy. And it's a great way to very quickly take the skills you have, twist them, pitch them a little bit, and reapply them into a new sector. And like you say, I think a lot of universities, uh, we can you know easily highlight people like Edinburgh, Aberdeen, Strathclyde, are developing really well-focused reskilling courses and they're doing that by working with companies in the offshore wind sector as well so companies like Ersted and people within our supply chain as well to make sure that what they're training these people in is relevant to the sector and will lead to uh, the jobs we need to fill you're almost the energy sector's kind of dream dream example there, Dave. Yeah. <laughs> Starting out in oil and gas retraining for renewables. It's uh, what I think everybody's hoping to yeah. be uh, ahead of the curve. Trying to myself as a poster boy, yeah. <laughs> but we do. I mean, it's true, actually. I mean, in my team, if I think about our, our team of project managers in the research and disruptive innovation team in Catapult, you know, we're a team of five or six now. And half of them have done that exact same thing that, that Dave's done, which has come from the oil and gas sector, retrain and then kind of join us at Catapult and actually you know we benefit from that as well we bring that understanding from the oil and gas sector that learning of a slightly different sector but in the same environment and actually push that out into our projects as well so it actually will be you know a fantastic thing for the sector to leverage in all that experience and skills as well. Definitely and, and, and Vicky just to kind of round us off it was a really good point you made earlier about the um the kind of location of these colleges in perhaps remote areas, coastal communities. It's the same for a lot of projects, especially tidal and wave, if obviously, especially up in Orkney and places like that. What technologies or crossover is there that we can look to to leverage from the likes of tidal and wave that could be replicated for use in making offshore wind farms more more efficient, more reliable? Yeah, I think it's probably going to be the other way around. I think 
the tidal sector and the wave sectors, you know, we haven't seen them in the last decade having the huge amount of support that the offshore wind and floating offshore wind sector have had. And so actually they have had to be even more innovative and more, you know, think outside of the box even more because they haven't had this real clear investment proposition laid out by the government in the form of revenue support, for example, which has meant that they've really had to work hard to continue to innovate and deploy technologies um, without having a really clear investor proposition so, you know, there are, there are some innovations in those sectors that I think it's more around the thinking, actually, and how they've innovated themselves out of problems. Whereas what we are probably going to see more of, actually, is because technologies like floating offshore wind are just going to leapfrog them because there's already a commercial market out there because many of the design and innovation challenges have been solved for technologies like those. You know, they're using existing, you know, huge um, horizontal axis turbines offshore, you know, a lot of those things are, are well understood. So it'll be more around the supply chain, I think, learnings from manufacturing, ports, installation, that sort of thing, I think will be the learnings that actually sectors like the tidal sector will benefit from. No, I, I think it's a really good point you make that actually I think it's mostly going to be the other way around, but hopefully sectors like wave and tidal and perhaps even floating solar can learn from the path that offshore wind's taken over the last couple of decades. So there, there are definitely some potential overlaps in technology development where similar technologies can be used by our sector and by wave and tidal. So things like measurement technologies, uh, moorings, dynamic cables, and so on. But actually, those, those crossovers are fairly uh, limited. But I think more generally, you can see that the offshore wind sector has really succeeded in rapidly upscaling, rapidly driving down costs, how you can take a new sector like this to new markets and how you can integrate it into new energy systems. And that's all the goals that we share with WAVE, with Tidal, with floating solar. So hopefully there's a lot of lessons learned there that can be transferred uh, and also data that we've acquired over those years that we can um, share for, for the benefit of those sectors. And we, we mentioned earlier that you know one of the, the other main challenges we face is around system integration. And you know, one of the most direct ways you can tackle uh, issues of system integration is to have real diversity of supply. So energy harvested and power delivered at different or at various um, times and at various locations. So I think there's a really good argument for for offshore wind, for wave, for tidal, for floating solar, and all the offshore renewables really to be developing together and then supporting each other in the energy system. I suppose it comes back to kind of the challenge of what needs to be needs to be done to overhaul the energy system that there is a kind of real united united front and a lot of collaboration so where there are crossovers it would seem that they're very likely to be to be spread across the across the broad and the, the wider benefits felt um i think that's probably sadly all we've got time for today uh, for this the latest episode of gigawaters so thank you very much dave thank you vicky for, for joining me today it was a really great chat a lot of very interesting points that we've dug down into um, to our listeners, if you'd like to share your thoughts about what's been discussed, you can find us on social media or you could drop us an email at outloud at energyvoice.com. Uh, don't forget to tune into our weekly podcast where the team will pick through the bones of the uh, week's goings on, ranging from oil and gas all the way through to renewables. If you're yet to do so, please also do subscribe free to Energy Voice Out Loud on your podcast app of choice and watch out for more episodes of Gigawaters coming soon. I'm Hamish Penman. Thank you for listening.
Out Loud is the podcast from Energy Voice, leading the global energy conversation. Bookmark and subscribe to energyvoice.com, sign up to our newsletter and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter for expert analysis and insight right across the energy sector. Subscribe to Out Loud on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do encourage colleagues and friends to listen to Out Loud too. If you've enjoyed it, leaving a rating or review, especially on Apple Podcasts, helps others discover it too. Thank you.